Good evening. My name is Chuck, and I'm alcoholic. I'm a member of the world-famous Monday Night Speakers Group. In good standing. Most of the time. Uh, I want to welcome our friends from out of state and out of the city and out of town, and uh, especially those from Iowa. Uh, they think that that's the capital of enthusiasm over there. I got news for them. Uh, I think Peggy and Dick took it from us. Uh, they call Iowa the pocket of enthusiasm. Yeah. And uh, if you've come to Alcoholics Anonymous here in this building and the building that we had before, you understand what loving Alcoholics Anonymous is all about and celebrating. I come to Alcoholics Anonymous quite by mistake. I did not mean to be here. Uh, so if you're here tonight and you didn't mean to be here, uh, welcome. Welcome. <laughs> we had made a run to Mexico, my partner and I, and we'd come back into Los Angeles. And he said to me, let's go again. And I said to him, I can't. I'm wore out. And he said, I got to go. And he says, and I say to him, I can't do it. Give me a chance to get some rest and I'll go back with you. He jumped back on the freeway. We had an old friend of ours. Of Los Angeles, that used to talk about, we're here by seconds and inches. He went back on the freeway, went back to Mexico, and went to prison for 35 years. I turned left, went alongside the freeway, went and got some rest, and ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Seconds and inches. My whole life, if I'd have bet, if you'd have bet, that Chuck would have never been here for 30 days, I would have bet with you. Yeah. I'd have covered that bet. I swear to God, I'd have borrowed money and covered that bet. <laughs> if anybody lent me any. But trouble was all around me. My life wasn't worth living. And I really didn't know what to do about it. See, I didn't understand that I was alcoholic. I had no idea. I would started drinking when I was 13 years old down at the beach in South Georgia. And I did it because the older guys were doing it. I was just part of it. I always wanted to be something that I wasn't. I wanted to be one of those grown-up guys. They had girls and cars and money. And I went down to the beach with them, and we went down behind the sand dune, and when we went down behind that sand dune, they broke out a jug. 
jug of gin. I was 13 years old. There was a couple of us, 15, and there was one that was 21 or 22. And they passed that jug around. And before they passed that jug around, I had always felt like I was different. We hear it a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. I felt like I didn't fit. I was always shy. I was the guy that couldn't go and do the book report at the front of the room. I'd rather get a zero than not than do that. I was always selfish and self-centered. It was all about me. And it was always your fault. And as they passed that jug around that circle and they got down to me, I took a great big pull off of it like they were doing and something happened. I don't know what had happened, but I can tell you what it felt like. I took a big pull off of that gin bottle and it went down and it choked me all the way down. It burnt down through my esophagus. It hit the bottom of my stomach, and it got real warm, and it started back up again. (laughs) And I like to talk about the fact that the first drink I took, that drink, and the last drink of alcohol I took before I walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous did the exact same thing for me. It didn't make me taller, didn't make my shoulders broader, didn't make me have big boobs, didn't make me a blonde, didn't do any of the things I've heard about. None of the things you guys talk about. I can tell you what it did for me. Alcohol did the thing it was supposed to do. It removed the ability for me to care. Once... That alcohol hit up here, that warm feeling, I didn't care anymore. I didn't care that I was 13 years old and you guys were older. I didn't care that I didn't, I couldn't make the book report. I didn't care I didn't have a girlfriend. Didn't matter to me. And it always did the same thing. Always. And I could always depend on the effect produced by alcohol. Always the same. They passed that jug on around and everybody took a pull and I took a big pull when it got back to me. And uh, it went down and didn't stay down this time. And I started, I'm a puker. Did I tell you guys I was a puker? (laughs) From the first drink all the way through. Until the last drink I took before I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a puker. I could do it this way. Projectile style. You know. But I got sick. They took me home, deposited me on my front porch. And my mother come out and collected me and took me in the house. Now, I had seen my mother collect my father one time. My father was not a drunk. I only saw him drink one time. I didn't even see him drink. I saw the results of his drinking one time. He came bouncing down the street after an office party one time. And he come up on the porch and there's my mom. My mom, 
should have joined ACA, or she should have joined another program. She was, what an Alan I she was. Oh, I loved her. And uh, she met him out on the front porch, and she took him in the house, and she put him in bed, and she took his clothes off, and she put a little cold rag up on his head, and she put a little puke bucket up on his chest. And I thought, that's how drunks like me need to be treated. Well, I stand here after all this time, and nobody's treated me that way yet. I swear to God. My mother took me in and told me I shouldn't be drinking, and and I didn't know anything about not... I knew nothing about drinking. And uh, I... Uh, I can remember the obsession. Dr. Silkworth talks about the obsession of the mind. And I just couldn't wait until we could do it again. It was going to be the weekend because I had no money. And those guys had booze and I had nothing. And they would come and pick me up and we'd do it again. And I couldn't wait for the weekends. And uh, you know, things rolled along. I was a good student. For most of the time. When I took that first drink, I was going to Sunday school at the Southern Baptist Church. When I took that first drink, I was in the Boy Scouts. When I took that first drink, I was a good student. When I took that first drink, if you looked at me, it would, I would be in a perfect, perfect household. I took that first drink and something happened, and from then on, I got rid of the Baptist church, because that didn't fit my lifestyle. I did, I'm not going to tell her about the, no, I'm not going to tell that. Uh, <laughs> the preacher had a, da a daughter, uh, <laughs> and she had boobs. <laughs> And I thought, if I can just touch one of those. <laughs> I used to chase her around. And her, and her dad saw me one time and sent her to a school outside the state. One of those Christian schools. Where'd that come from? I wasn't going to tell you. I'm an adopted child. My parents got killed behind alcoholic drinking and driving, they tell me. I never know for sure. But that lady and that man that raised me came to an orphanage. And here I was. I was two years old. I had blonde hair and blue eyes, and I was gorgeous. I... <laughs> If you'd, have, if you'd have come to that orphanage, you'd have adopted me too. I mean, <laughs> but they took me home. They did the very best they knew how to do. And they raised me with a, in a good Christian home. They raised me in all of the... They gave me everything that they possibly could give me. They treated me real well.
Before I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, that mother stood in the doorway and said, I damn the day I ever brought you home from that orphanage. That's what alcohol is all about for me. I went through school. I ended up with a scholarship to University of Florida. Ended up there, and we don't know whether I was there two days or four days, and I got thrown out. Ended up in a town called Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Never saw the groundhog. Didn't even know there was a groundhog up there. Ended back in Savannah, Georgia, and they they gave me a party. If you're one of us, when you arrive back in town after you've been gone for a period of time, we give people parties. That's what we do. And uh, they give me a party, and they had a big punch bowl. And in that punch bowl, they put white lightning. And on top of it, they put a little bit of grape juice. They put an ice cube or two and stirred it up. And they called it Purple Jesus. And you stand there and take a drink of that stuff and it was just, Jesus! <laughs> Me and a bunch of us got drunk that night and we joined the, the Coast Guard, we thought. When we come to, we were on a train in the United States Navy going to San Diego, California. Never have figured out how in the hell we got in the wrong line. Yeah. Ten of us. I drink essentially for the effect produced by alcohol. Yeah. I ended up in... In San Diego in boot camp, real quickly, I'll go through this, and uh, ended up in Korea for three years, nine months, and 27 days. During that period of time, I met a girl at a party that one of you guys gave, and uh, I met her, and I loved her. It was God's will for me. <laughs> and I asked her for a date, and her old man took a look at me and said, if you want to date him, you got to take him to an AA meeting first. They took me to an AA meeting. I'm 19 years old, and I'd like to tell you about my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It was down beside a railroad track in a little town, and uh, you went up and around back. They did not allow people to come in front, not us. And uh, it was above a laundromat. And you went up a little flight of stairs and you went into a little room and there was a little bare bulb and there was a bunch of people. bunch of people. And I'll tell you what I thought. I went in there and sat down. I'm 19 years old and, and they're old people. <laughs> when you're 19, every damn body's old. I'll guarantee it. And I sat in there and they started lying about things. You know, I, they, one of them told me, was talking about being arrested 101 times in one year. You ever tried to count that up? That's a lot of times in one year. And I uh, knew that was a lie. 
talk about getting their families back and their kids back. And they had two jobs. I mean, I didn't even have one. What the hell they were talking about? Two jobs. And uh, some people had three. And I was up, and I figured that's one upmanship, you know. And uh, anyhow, let me tell you what I thought. That's enough of that crap. Let me tell you what I thought. I thought, we're not very far from the mental institute. (laughs) When this meeting's over, they're going to back a bus up here, put all these crazy people back on that bus, and take them back to the mental institute where they belong. That was my first impression of Alcoholics Anonymous. If they'd have said it, do you want what we've got? I'd have said, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I left that meeting. I, mar- I, I dated that girl and married her girlfriend in that order. And, uh, and for the next 13 years, I took that young lady down the broad highway of broken promises and busted dreams. Because if you marry a guy like me, that's all the heck you're going to get is one more promise, one more busted dream. We had three beautiful daughters out of that marriage. I had, by the grace of God, I ended up in a business where we made a lot of money. And I was able to buy her a brand new home. A home that nobody had ever lived in before. And I worked in Los Angeles, and I had her out in the country, out in Orange County. And I thought, if I buy you things, that means I love you. That's the only thing I've ever known. I'd ever known in my life is girls want things. Buy them things, and they say, oh, that's love. And that's all I knew. And I instilled her in that brand new house and on the corner, and she had to call the fence man to have a fence put in, and a lawn man to have the lawn put in, and a drapery man to have the drapery put in, and a carpet man to have the carpet put in. And that's all I knew. That's what my mother did. That's what she should do. And uh, I went on back to Los Angeles, and I had a lot of... T- we- We had a lot of business going on. And uh, things rocked along for about four years. And every four years she got restless, irritable, and discontent. That's the only way I know how to put it. She thought I should quit drinking. And uh, I thought, well, I'll buy her another house. And I bought her a bigger house, a new house. And that should shut her up for four years. <laughs> and that'd give me enough time to go out and do some drinking. And uh, I bought her that house, and I went out to Los, went back to L.A. and started drinking. And it, wasn't, it was drinking every day now. When I started, it was every weekend. And then from every weekend, it was every now and then. And then it was the party and the block parties and the Tupperware parties and all the stuff that you do. And that now it's become every day. And it rocks on and I promise her I'm going to quit drinking. 
Because I thought drinking was a problem. And I promised her that I'd go to the, to the uh, marriage counselor with her. Then I went to the psychiatrist with her. And he told me that it was her fault that I was drinking. I loved him. And uh, <laughs> then she brought the, the Catholic priest on me. Yeah. Then she brought in Al-Anons. Yeah. Her mother and my father-in-law had joined Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon at this time. I didn't know what it was. I had forgotten all about 19 years old. And I... Come Thanksgiving, I had promised her that I was going to stop drinking. You know that one of those pledges, I'll never drink again? Yeah. And I left work, or left for work, on, a thir- on, a, on a, the day before Thanksgiving. And incidentally, I bought her a new house because she had been irritable and discontent again. And... Uh, I bought her a two-story house this time. I got her a housekeeper, and I thought, that'll take care of her? Yeah. And I got another whole story in there, but I, can't talk, I haven't got time to talk about it. And I promised her I wasn't going to drink this time. I was going to stop forever. And I left, and I went down to work. And I walked into my office, and I was going to pay the guys and bid them well for Thanksgiving, give them the weekend off, and go back home. And as I turned, they had set up a little bar outside. And one of them said, have a drink, Chuck. One won't hurt you. And I said, no, I promised her I wasn't going to drink. And I went to my car and I threw, and I got in the car and I thought, oh, damn, I left my checkbook. And I went back to the office, opened the door, reached in, got my checkbook, closed the door, locked the door, turned to go back to the car, and one of them said, how about a screwdriver? And I threw a screwdriver down the day before Thanksgiving in 1968, after promising her that morning, that I was not going to drink, that we were going to have a decent holiday this year, that I wouldn't throw the Christmas tree out in the street, that I wouldn't throw the kids' toys out there with it. I woke up on the morning of January the 1st of 1969. I'd come to. I remember being in Bakersfield, California. I remember being in, in, in uh, San Francisco at a party. I remember being over in Phoenix, Arizona at a party, just briefly. And here I was laying on, a, on someone's hardwood floor, not knowing where I'm at. 
And I asked the guy, did he have a phone? And he said, yes. And I said, where are we? And he told me, and I picked up the phone, and I called her because I didn't know where my car was, and I asked her to come get me. And she said, where are you? And I told her, and she came that morning to pick me up on January the 1st of 1969. And I'd been missing since the day before Thanksgiving of 1968. And on the way home that morning, she looked at me and she said, I don't want to live this way anymore. And I don't want to raise my children this way anymore. And I want you out of the house. My alcoholic ego told, told me that that was my house, not her house. Didn't matter. I was out of the house. I went down on the boulevard and started doing some drinking. Because that's where I always drank. I, ran, I drank down there. She always said, why don't you go to the nice places to drink? It seemed like a nice place to me. <laughs> Perspective. And I, uh, I started drinking down the boulevard, and I ran out of money. And the IRS come in and chained up the business. They didn't lock it up. They chained it up. And I used to sit on the far side of the bar. If you've ever been in one of those bars that had the hook on it, where you sit way down there all by yourself, and you can drink and think, and nobody messes with you. And I thought... Poor little old Chuck. Poor Chuck. I've had it all. I'm a fair-haired boy out of Los Angeles. I had it all. And she took it away from me. And I sat around there and I thought and drank and all alone and I ran out of money, ran out of resources, and one of the guys that was hanging out on the corner outside talked to me about about living in a cardboard box, because they were. And we pulled a cardboard box out behind the A&P grocery store, and that's where they were in a pine thicket, <clears throat> and I crawled in, cheap living. I guarantee it. But if you ever lived in an abandoned car, if you've ever lived in a Dempsey dumpster, if you've ever lived in an abandoned house, a cardboard box, whatever it is, what happens to you, it just becomes okay. I've heard lots of ladies come to Alcoholics Anonymous and talk about no matter how bad it got, it was still Okay, it was better than being alone. And I thought, my God, that's what it's all about. It's just better than nothing. And I, I laid up in that, in that cardboard box, and, and uh, some of the gals down on the corner were working, turning tricks out of a motel in, in uh, Garden Grove. And they walked over to me one day and they said, Chuck, you can't live in this cardboard box during the winter time. If you do, you'll catch pneumonia. Come on, go with us. We've got a little cleaning gear closet. It's got soap and towels and a little old folding steel cot in it. And if you'll come and live there, 
until at least the winter's over, you'll be okay. And I moved in there. And I thought it was wonderful. On February the 22nd of 1969, I got up out of that cot, and you guys were talking about going somewhere. I didn't know where you were going, but you were talking about going somewhere. And I got up, and I thought, I'd like to go too, but before I go, I want to call and see if I can take my daughters to breakfast this morning. I got three blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughters. And I called her, my ex-wife, and I said, can I take my ch- the kids over to breakfast this morning? And she said, you can't take my children anywhere. I lost the right to visit my own children. She said, but you can come over here and sit at the breakfast table. I fixed breakfast and you can eat here. And I said, okay. And I went over there and I visited for a little while very quietly. You know how it is. It's very cold. And while I was sitting there, the phone rang. And it was that ex-mother-in-law of mine who had joined Al-Anon. And her husband had joined AA. And she said to my ex-wife, she said, Would you guys like to come over for dinner today? And she said, I can't. He's here. Remember when you lost your name? (laughs) He's here. And apparently she said, bring him too. And I got in her car, used to be my car, in her car and drove across town to her mother's house, which used to be my mother-in-law. And uh, I walked in the front door and there was a a guy named Bob. Bob was in that house and I don't know. I heard an Al-Anon talk many years later by the name of Ramona from Oklahoma. And she said, when the student is ready, God will provide the teacher. I did not know I was ready that morning. What you guys were talking about was going to Woodstock. And I wanted to go to Woodstock. Because I knew if I got to Woodstock, I'd get straightened out. (laughs) You promised me. And I walked in that morning and there was a guy named Bob. And he was on fire with Alcoholics Anonymous. And his eyes were blazing and he walked in. And I walked in and he stuck his hand out and he said, My name's Bob. And I haven't had a drink in 60 days or whatever the heck it was. And I thought, poor bastard. Yeah. <laughs> and he talked. And he talked. And he talked. And I thought, my God, she has written down my story, given it to this character. He's a little self-centered, right? He's memorized it. And now he's telling me my story as if it was his. And all day long he followed me around this house. About 8 o'clock, there came a guy, 
great big guy, and his name was Gene. And he walked up and he said, Chuck, he says, we're going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. Would you like to go? That was February the 23rd of 1969. For some reason, I said yes. Now, rebellion dogs my every step. I'm just like everybody else. I say no when I should say yes, and I say yes when I should say no. And I said yes. I went outside and I got no Lincoln Continental with a bunch of guys with suits on. I had on a pair of work, somebody's work shirt and somebody's work pants with somebody's name on them. No pair of shoes. And I sat in the middle with those guys with those suits on in the back of that car. And I felt the most inadequate I'd felt in many years. <clears throat> and I'll tell you why. It wasn't because of their suits, and it wasn't because of any of that stuff. I was sitting with a pair of boxer shorts with the crotch torn out, and I thought everybody knew it. (laughs) They took me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in a converted mortuary. John sobered up at the same converted mortuary as I did. And they took me there in a huge meeting on Sunday night. They had an ambulance that sat outside the door so that when you fell out of your chair and went into DTs, they called the EMs. They'd come in and take you to the hospital. That was the kind of meeting it was. And uh, I went in and they, they sat all the newcomers on the front row up here. And I came in they sat me up here in the front and... The one guy said to me, would you like a cup of coffee? And I said, I'd love a cup of coffee. Now, they didn't have cups. We did not have foam cups in those days. They were green glass. <coughs> Kept the newcomers busy washing them. Yeah, I found out later. And uh, he went back to the back and got me a cup of coffee, and he brought it up to me, and he handed it to me. I've never been a shaker. I'm a jerker. And uh, I'm nervous, and he hands me this cup of coffee, and I jerk, and up it goes, and breaks, it and, and spills all over. I thought, they don't want my kind here. You know, these are nice people that are here. And that one guy with the suit brushed himself off. The other guy picked up the cup. The other guy had to go get a Band-Aid or something because I cut him. And uh, the little guy looked up at me and he said, I'll go get you another cup. It was the beginning of the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. One drunk helping another. He went back and got me a cup of coffee and he brought it up and he didn't fill it up so much this time. And he handed it to me. And I drank that cup of coffee and I sat there and there was a guy standing at the podium much like this podium. And he looked out over the crowd and he said, you can walk out of here tonight and never take another drink as long as you live if that's what you you choose to do. And I thought, my God, I never heard anybody say that before. 
Then he talked about the first drink gets you drunk. And I knew that was a bunch of crap. Yeah. Takes about three or four to get you started. And uh, he talked about a God that was personal to him. He talked about a power that he had finally found in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they left. we left that meeting that night, and something happened to me. All of a sudden, I felt like there was some hope. When I walked in that meeting, my life wasn't worth living. When I walked out that night, on Sunday night, I thought there's maybe, maybe there's some way I can get it where it will be worth living. And I walked out that night, and they said, We'll pick you up tomorrow, and they picked me up the next day. Now, I had a little old sponsor. He was a rotten guy. He was born and raised in, in, in uh, Hell's Kitchen. Huh? And he was, he was there in the 1800s. That's how nasty he was. He's one of those guys that you see that had been beat by damn near everybody. I mean, <laughs> face was twisted, nose. You say to me, get in the car, punk. I think, you old son. But he said to me one time, he said, I was living in that clean gear locker in that whorehouse, and, and he said to me, meet me out on the corner Tomorrow night at 6 o'clock, and I'll take you to the next meeting. And I said to him, I can't go out in the corner. The girls work the corner, Jack. <laughs> so just meet me on the corner. And he went away. Next night he come by, and I'm standing in the middle of the block. <laughs> he drives to the corner. Sits at the corner. I got to walk all the way down, get in the car. I'd get in the car and he wouldn't talk to me. He would talk to everybody but me. I got in the back and he'd talk to them and they'd laugh and have a great time. We'd get, I'd say to him, where are we going? He wouldn't even bother answering me. <laughs> he'd talk to somebody else. I finally quit asking him where we're we going. Yeah. He was a wonderful guy, wonderful guy. In those days, we didn't have big book studies. In those days, Paul, we didn't have those kinds of things. Most of the clubhouses had AA meetings because we didn't have any churches that would let our nasty asses in. And uh, we had a lot of clubhouses, though. And that's where most of us sobered up. And there was a, it was a wonderful place because I'll tell you as a newcomer, I was too sick to work. I was too shaky and I couldn't get a job. And I'd go to that clubhouse and they'd allow me to sweep the floor. They'd allow me to put the chairs away. They would allow me to have the leftover donuts because every meeting had donuts in those days. Right? Dick is, Coming up, he, he's a local newcomer, but he'll he'll be here soon. And uh, 
but they'd allow us to have the donuts left over. So we'd have hard donuts, and I could have the leftover coffee before they're made fresh. And uh, so that was what I was living on. But I had a meeting every morning, a meeting at noon, a meeting in the, at night, and there was a 10 o'clock meeting and a midnight meeting, and, and it was wonderful. But I did not think that I could stay sober. See, I come to Alcoholics Anonymous not knowing what's wrong with me. I didn't know anything about the obsession of the mind. I didn't know anything about the allergy. I had no idea. I thought that if I thought it, if I believed that I could stop drinking, I could. I never knew that I couldn't. I always believed that I had the willpower to do it. No amount of willpower can do it for me. I had to finally come to understand. I met a guy, and I want to talk about this real quick. I met a guy from the Casbah. Born and raised at the Casbah. He'd become a Tibetan monk. He was educated in Europe. And I went one day with a bunch of you guys to, to, to a, a little apartment. And I walked in, and here's this guy sitting on a big chair. And I walked in, and I sat down. He had this glow about him. And I started to listen to this man. And he talked about being raised in the Kasbar, going to school. He went to school with Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist. He ran around the streets of Paris, became a monk, got thrown out for drinking. And he was sitting there in that chair with a friend of ours. And he started to talk, and I sat down at his feet. And this guy talked to me about the God of his understanding. Not the God of the church, but the God of his understanding. And I sat there and I listened. And it made sense to me because what had happened to me is that I had looked, I tried. I was born and raised Southern Baptist. I became Methodist. I am Episcopalian. I joined the Jewish Educational Alliance. I was baptized 13 times before I come here. And uh, I did the tent revival every time I'd see one. I'd walk in and go as I was. I'd been dunked. I'd been... I've been done everything, too. <laughs> and what I ended up with is a great big, a great big dish of confusion. When I came here and you told me that I could find the God of my understanding, I started there. I started there. I found the God that I can turn my life and my will over to, that I can trust with the results of my life, that I can, on a daily basis, take that third step.
and turn my life, which is my thinking, and my will, which is my actions, over to the care of the power that I understand is my God. And what's happened is that in the last 40 years, I've went through divorce. I've been through broke. I've been homeless. I've been all the things that everybody else has been again and again. And what I found out of all of that was that I made decisions based on myself that later put me in a position to be hurt over and over and over again. And when I finally got smart enough or dumb enough, whichever the case may be, to quit putting my will in my hand and put it in the God of my understanding's hand, my life has been pretty damn good ever since. I live today. I walk on the sunny side of the street. My life is good. My lady doesn't cry at night. When I go to bed, my head is okay. I'm okay with the world, and I'm okay with me, and I'm okay with my lady. That's the best I ever had it. Thank you.